Thanks for joining us this week for the Church at Starkey Hills podcast. Be sure to visit our website at starkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Amen. Was that a good opportunity to worship or what? Amen. Great job, worship team. And I hope you didn't miss your opportunity to go before a great God because he was expecting you this morning and hopefully you were not a no-show. But you'll have another opportunity at the end. And now we get to worship God by looking at his word. And, and we have a guest speaker today and, and everything in me wants to preach after that opportunity to worship and what God is doing in our life here at the church. And uh, so I'm honored and privileged to introduce our guest speaker today. Uh, of course, we are in Exodus on the move. That's what the series we're in. And we're in the Old Testament. And, and today we're going to look at Psalm chapter 90 and also in the Old Testament. And just like those songs Say, uh, we, that we sang about, that God is, he's always at work. God is always on the move. He's a great God all the time, eternally past, eternally f- in the future. He's God. And sometimes we need to be reminded of the greatness of our God. And so we have a friend that's going to help us do that today. His name is uh, Aharon Lavarco, and uh, not a name common uh, around here. So we could call him Aaron. I just kind of like saying Aharon. I may be butchering his name, but it sounds cool to me. And so, uh, uh, so our friend is, uh, and guest is going to be coming today uh, from Israel. Now, he was raised in New Zealand in a, uh, a Jewish, Orthodox Jewish home. And at age 19, someone simply told him the rest of the story. To a Jew, the rest of the story is the same rest of the story as it is to a Gentile. That Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Jesus is God and he is our Messiah, the Savior of the world. Someone told him that story and he simply said last night there was no pushback within him. He just received it. Well, from that... Uh, a few years later, like many Jews are doing, according to prophecy, uh, he immigrated to Israel. And while there, he served nine years at one level or another uh, in the military there. And he went to, uh, went to seminary. And so now he's a tour guide. And in November 13th through the 17th, when we go, uh, we've got him scheduled. Hopefully, he'll be our tour guide uh, while we're over there. Now, here's what's funny for a tour guide or a speaker from Israel. Uh, if you are from the Middle East and that's your natural language and you learn English, it's, 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 it's kind of brutal sometimes. It's, it's a hard language to listen to and certainly to understand. That's not our speaker today because his original language was English from New Zealand. And so he has a really cool accent, all right, and much better than mine. And so uh, I want you to help me welcome this morning our speaker, Aharon Lavarco. Let's welcome him this morning. Thank you, Pastor Joel. And um, like I said last night, I don't think I actually have an accent. I think you all have the accent, but uh, we don't need to debate about that. But it's great to be here this morning. It's an honor. My second time to Tennessee. And uh, I'm looking forward to being the guide uh, when you come in November. For those of you who have signed up, if you haven't signed up, I think there's still places. And it's a life-changing experience to come and learn about not only the history, but uh, some of the geography, the geology, uh, learning about what's going on geopolitically, the wars, the boundaries, the neighbors, what's going on in the Middle East, the new Middle East that uh, is emanating. And uh, for those of you who are interested in archeology span as well, um, 
that's also an exciting part of the tour. In fact, a lot of people come to Israel and they do archaeological digs, volunteer digs. I've done a few myself. Um, in fact, some people say that my career is in ruins. Uh, but there's always the excitement. You never know what you're going to find when you come on tour. You know, Egyptologists, they say that they have discovered that Egypt was a very fatherless society. Uh, the way they've discovered that is that they've only been able to find mummies. They can't find daddies. <laughs> All right, good morning, and I hope you're awake after those bad jokes. Um, you'll get plenty of jokes on the tour. I like to make it fun as we travel around. But uh, today, um, I'm here to share something from God's Word, which is my passion. Uh, when COVID started, uh, basically all my work was canceled because, you know, the skies closed, the airports closed, tourists, uh, they weren't allowed to come. But the good Lord opened uh, new doors through uh, Zoom, which started kind of at the same time that COVID started. And uh, I'm doing a, an online uh, Bible teaching, and uh, we go through the Torah, the five books of Moses, and so uh, if you want some more information about that, uh, you can talk to me later. But today, uh, I'm going to be speaking from Psalm 90. Psalm 90 was written by Moses uh, when he was toward the end of his life, and uh, he's reflecting on some things that he's learned over those years, those many years that he lived out in the desert. You know, the biblical picture of the, the common person was either you were a, a, a shepherd, a desert nomad, or a tent dweller. And we have a lot of stories about these great biblical figures, but uh, I guess our challenge is to read between the lines what actually went along, what actually went on uh, most of their lives. You know, Moses wasn't splitting the Red Sea every five minutes. He had a lot of time out in the desert to think, to uh, dwell. And uh, I kind of always say, being a Bible uh, a student um, or an archaeologist, it's kind of like being a detective. You come to the scene or you come to the text and you kind of try to reconstruct what's going on. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? What was the purpose? What was the intent? What was going on culturally, socially, historically? And uh, I always say context is the key to understanding the Bible. So Moses, uh, he, he, makes, he starts off with a very interesting statement in Psalm 90 verse 1 by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And I think what's really interesting and impacting to me is I think the focus here is he's saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And why I think that strikes me is because one of the key things that Moses did in his life, when he was on Mount Sinai, he actually received the pattern for the tabernacle. And the tabernacle and the temple later on, they were the dwelling places for the Lord, a house for the Lord. Like the Lord himself said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You know, the Hebrew word for dwelling place is the word shekinah. And this is where we get what we say in English, shekinah. 
the Shekinah glory, the dwelling place of the Lord. In fact, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, there are a number of sources that say that the Shekinah glory was seen departing from Jerusalem on its highest mount, the Mount of Olives. So we still talk about the Shekinah glory today, but Moses is using that word when he said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And probably Moses, when he was sitting out there in the desert all those many, many days, months, years, he had a lot of time to reflect on his past. And what was his past? He didn't have a Bible. The Bible wasn't written yet. He didn't really have a religion because there was no real religion for the Jewish people yet. In fact, that's a question that uh, someone asked once. When did the Jewish religion actually begin? Did it begin when God promised Abraham? Did it begin at Mount Sinai? Did it begin when uh, the Sanhedrin formed uh, the the Talmud and the Mishnah? Was it later on, rabbinic Judaism? It's a really interesting question. But Moses really, based on the, the academics, really he only had oral tradition to call on. When in Egypt for 400 years, the Israelites sat around the table, they discussed it, they sat around the campfire, playing you know, good southern uh, gospel music, and uh, they were discussing the stories of their past, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some of the, the, the uh, stories that were passed down from generation to generation, like for example, Jacob. When Jacob was uh, born, remember, even in the womb, he had this very competitive uh, nature where he wanted to outdo his brother Esau. And uh, he grew up and he deceived his brother. He deceived his father. He cheated by dressing up in these hairy arms like his brother. And his father Isaac, who was almost blind, said, the voice is Jacob, but the arms are Esau. And because he, he cheated his father and Esau missed out on the blessing, um, Esau wanted to kill him. So the mother, Rebecca, when she heard about it, she told Jacob, get out of here. And so poor Jacob, and by the way, we still have problems in the Middle East today because of that story. Um, but uh, even before when Rebecca was pregnant and she had pain in her womb and God said, in your belly are two nations and they will fight against each other. But that's another story. Uh, but Poor Jacob, he lost everything. You know, when you think about it, he lost his father, he lost his mother, he lost his relationship with his brother, he lost his home. He went to his uncle Laban's, he had issues there, he had to move on from there, and he's out in the middle of the wilderness, very dark, cold deserts, and what happened? The Lord appears to him. And you'd think that the Lord probably had a few hard words to say to Jacob because of all of his trickery and uh, bad behavior, but instead the Lord appears to him at that probably the lowest, the most darkest time in Jacob's life, penniless, really not in a good place in his life. And the Lord reminds him who he is, who his ancestors are. 
And he reminds him of the promises and says, Ufaratsta, you will break forth to the north, the south, the west, the east. And the Lord lavishes upon him all of the promises, all of the hope that he needed. And Jacob wakes up uh, kind of in a little bit of shock because he said, you know, all of this, this time, I didn't know God really was even with me, but he truly is in this place, and I did not even know it. And then he builds with a, a stone. He builds this place, and he calls it Beit El, which we say in English, Bethel, which means the house of God. And, you know, this place, the house of God, for Jacob was a very sacred site. In other words, it wasn't a tabernacle, it wasn't a temple, it wasn't a big home, it wasn't a church, it wasn't a synagogue. It was right where he was. He made it the house of God. Even though he was a wanderer, even though he was a nomad, even though he had nothing going in his life. What more really did he need except the presence of God? But he made it happen. He brought heaven down to earth. And I would imagine Moses, as he's reflecting on stories like this, Jacob and Abraham and Isaac, if you read, wherever they went, it says they built an altar unto the Lord. Abraham built an altar, Isaac built an altar. And these altars were the places that you could draw near to God. That's what sacrifice and altars really were all about. The Hebrew word sacrifice is korban, and it's from the word lehit karev, which means to draw near to God. And the sacrifice allows one to draw near to God. So Moses is looking back, and I think the emphasis on this verse is, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Isn't that encouraging to us? Wherever we go, no matter how low, dark, lost we may feel or seem, or no matter how far away we are from God's presence, at least that's what we feel, God is always with us. It was Moses who said that we don't have to go down and call God up, or we don't have to go up to the heavens and call God down but we can confess that he is actually in our heart. So this to me is encouraging no matter where we are. We can make it a house of God wherever we are. Do I hear an amen in the house of the Lord this morning? Amen. So verse two, he goes on. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He touches on that phrase from everlasting to everlasting. Maybe Moses was reflecting back to that moment that the Lord basically told him to go and make war with the greatest superpower in the world, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Egypt was the superpower of the world. They had all that water in the Nile. And of course, the water was the real strength of Egypt because with that water, they could grow agriculture, and from that agriculture, they could trade, they could sell. With that money, they can build, they can buy weapons. 
On top of that, they were surrounded by sand, by the desert. It was like a buffer zone. So they had their own source of water, but they also had a, a layer of protection. They were the superpower of the world, and the Lord tells them to go and make war and basically say, you got to let all these slaves, all my people go. And, um, but Moses was a little bit insecure. Who's going to believe me? What do I say? Who do I say send me? And the Lord appeared to him as the great Echier, Asher Echier, which means, we say in English, I am that I am. But in the Hebrew, it really is, I will be what I will be. And he doesn't just say, Echier. He doesn't just say, I will be. But he repeats it and says, I will be what I will be. And some of the rabbinic interpretations of that verse is basically saying, God will not only be his whole existence, his eternal existence, he was, he is, and he will ever be, but he will be what Moses needs him to be in that context. So perhaps Moses is thinking back on that verse, and then he says, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. What's happened? The, dark, the, the plague of darkness over Egypt has struck us. Oh, here we go. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep in the morning. They are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. For we have been, okay, I'll just stop there for now. But Moses here, as he's out in that desert, sitting in his tent, wherever he's composing this poem, and he's thinking of the Lord, of the dwelling places, the history, and, and as he's thinking it, he's probably looking at nature and somehow trying to connect to God through nature, which is what a lot of the, the writers and the speakers in the Bible did. Jesus, Paul, David, when David wrote a lot of the Psalms, he used nature as metaphors for God. God is my rock. God is my shade at, the, at my right hand. God, deep calls to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls. Or man is like a tree planted by the rivers. That's why it's so important to understand and study nature. It was Albert Einstein who said the three key things to understanding God and yourself are history, nature, and animals. Really interesting. And I, as I think and ponder that more and more, there's a lot of truth to that. But uh, Moses is connecting with God, connecting with himself through nature. And uh, he kind of has this revelation about how there's such a mystery in what we call time. You know, a thousand years is like a day. It just, it's like another quote from Albert Einstein. He says, life is like a hamster, where you're on a, one of those like wheels, running around, doing your, your stuff, and while you're on that wheel, he said, we quite often think of our past, our present, and our future. 
And there is the element of time. And really, think about it. Uh, this mystery of time that one minute you look and you realize how much you've changed or 10 years has passed by or 20 years. And, uh, but with the Lord, he is the he is the self-existing, the eternal God who doesn't step out of time. He is the ever-present. But in the Lord's eyes, one day is like a thousand. And he then goes on to kind of, he goes on a little bit of a tangent where he revisits a story that happened in Israel's past. He says, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. And... I believe Moses was revisiting to that moment at Mount Sinai when the Israelites, they, they had the victory of coming out of Egypt, this great deliverance. Um, and then they went through various testings, various trials. They come to Mount Sinai and the Israelites are seated, uh, seated at the foot of the mountain Moses goes up. By the way, this is where Judaism, this is what Judaism calls the marriage ceremony for the Israelites. In, in Egypt, they were individuals, but he brought them out as an army. Now it's the first time they're called the people of God. But now this is where, of course, when they come out of Egypt, he calls them my firstborn. But now this is where the rabbis say we become the bride because if you look at what happened at Sinai, you've got this real picture of a ceremony going on. You've got the Israelites at the foot of the mountain kind of under a canopy. You've got Moses with a veil over his face, which they say that's where we get the idea of having a veil, the woman, the, the bride, having a veil over her face. You've got Israel coming out of Egypt with a dowry, with all the, the, the treasures. And then you've got the exchange of vows, where Moses mentions all the commandments, and the Israelites say, everything you say we will do. So there's a real interesting picture of a marriage ceremony there. But while they were waiting for Moses, remember what they did. They built this golden uh, calf. And... We all know how serious and how wrong that was, but I think the real problem was the phrase that says, when they saw Moses delaying, they went into action and they built this golden calf. And why, why do I think that that is the, the, the serious issue here? I think it's because up until this moment, Moses pretty much did everything for the people of Israel. When they were in Egypt, he was the one that went to war for them. He was the one that called down the 10 plagues. He was the one that lifted the, the rod over uh, the Red Sea. He was the one who spoke to the rock. He was the one who struck the rock. Then the Lord, he was the one 
that rained down the manna and brought the quails. They really didn't have to do anything. Little bit of, few mentions that they trusted in the Lord, but doesn't really come across that they had a very strong relationship with the Lord. Moses was the guy who did everything. He was the leader. He was the representative of God. Why, why do we have to do everything? Moses is doing it. And so when it says they saw him delaying, they went into action. And maybe it was some kind of uh, separation anxiety. Who knows? But um, it's really interesting, and I'll get to this a little bit later, but if you read two, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, let's not get into arguments about new moons, festivals, Sabbaths, and then he says, these are all shadows, but the reality is the Messiah, Christ. And so we know that Moses, his leadership, his laws, he's just a shadow. The reality is the Messiah. And if you actually look at what happened when the Lord was on earth teaching his disciples for three years, he really did the same. He did pretty much everything. It was, a, it was like their discipleship. He was teaching them. He was training them. A few times he sent them out to do things, but really he did most of it. But I think he started then to prepare them for his ascension because after he, uh, after he rose from the dead, he was on the earth for another 40 days. And during that period, if you have a look, he was, I believe, preparing them when he already had said, you know, I'm gonna go away and it's good because I will send the Spirit. And then when Mary went to touch him, he said, don't touch me. I have not yet ascended to my father. On the road to Emmaus, the moment that their eyes were open, it says he then departed. When he walked through the walls after the resurrection and said, Shalom Aleichem, peace be to you. Uh, he showed them that with, he's with them. He can, there's no difference with space and time and four walls. He is with them. And I think he was preparing them to walk that walk of faith. And I think that the other interesting lesson from this is that the Israelites at Mount Sinai, when they were waiting for Moses and he delayed, they took all of that energy that God created energy that they had, and instead of using it for good, they used it for bad. They built this golden calf. Afterwards, after they repented, after they got things right with the Lord, you remember what happened? Moses gives them the pattern for the tabernacle, and that same energy, instead of now building a golden calf, bringing their gold and their silver to make that, it says that they brought the gold, they brought the silver to make the tabernacle. Same actions, just all of that energy directed in the right channels instead of the wrong channels. And I think this is such a, a key lesson. While we're waiting for our Moses, while we're waiting on the Lord, our unseen God, while we're waiting for our prayers to be answered, you know, uh, it can be a, a, a time that we can let despair, hopelessness get in because our prayers are not being answered. 
But I think this is a moment that we need to keep moving forward. As Moses says, when he goes on, he says, the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. And then he says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I think, again, the context, while we're waiting on you, God, while you're delaying, at least in our economy, your timing is always the perfect time. But while we're waiting on you, teach us wisdom. Let's get on with life. Let's use this energy, this God-created energy, and channel it in the right direction. And then Moses says, he kind of turns to a prayer. In Hebrew, he says, Shuva Adonai, return, O Lord. How long? This is also mentioned by David in the Psalms a number of times. Return, O Lord, Isaiah the prophet. And basically, I think Moses is saying, God, is it really going to be for the rest of our lives we're going to have to keep on paying for our sins, our mistakes, what we did at Sinai? Do we really need to have that in our face all the days of our lives? And something that I shared in the earlier service is, you know, all of us have made mistakes, sinned, and all that. And sometimes the consequences are less, and sometimes the consequences are, are grave. And we all know, according to the Bible, and maybe you don't know this, but if we actually confess whatever sin we've committed, God's word promises that we will be forgiven. The thing is, though, we're not always delivered from the consequences of our sin. You know, and I gave the example, if someone murders someone, they get sent to prison, they get to prison, and they say, God, forgive me for doing that. I genuinely mean it. Forgive me. Yes, God will forgive that person. But is God going to deliver that person from prison? Not necessarily. So sometimes we have to live with the consequences of our sin. Moses had to himself. He screwed up big time when God said, speak to the rock, Moses. Do something different. I'm going to lead you in a new way. Speak to the rock. Moses had only known about striking the rock, which in those days was a very common thing. In fact, today, Bedouins, desert nomads, they do the same thing. They get sticks, they tap the rocks, they listen to the volume, and then they know where the water is, and then they strike, and the water will come out. Because especially in the Judean desert and in the Negev, the rocks are very soft, and they split. And when it rains, the water seeps in through the rocks, and it bottles up. And that's how the the Bedouins can provide water for themselves. So Striking the rock wasn't necessarily a miracle. The miracle was that where God showed him where to do it. But in this case, God said, I want you to speak to the rock. And uh, Moses didn't just get angry. Moses kind of took upon himself, I think, a little bit of a Messiah complex because when he got angry, have you noticed what he said? He said, must we bring water out of the rock? 
And so that wasn't his role. His role was just to speak to the rock. But he screwed up. And because of that mistake, the Lord said, you are not going into the promised land. And I think, I mean, I don't know how Moses took that because after all, he, his forefathers, his ancestors, they were promised not just descendants, but land. So this was a, a centuries-old hope and, and desire. And then he gets chosen to be the one who leads them out of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. So he's got the, the, the hope of, of that promise getting closer and closer. Now they're out into the desert. Now he can almost smell the promised land, can smell the falafel and the schnitzel and the, and the uh, shawarma cooking. And, uh, and now he's lost it and he's not allowed to go and he can, he can see it. And you know, Moses could have felt sorry for himself. He could have felt bad. He could have beaten himself up day after day after day. Why did I do that? Why, you know? But he didn't. He somehow found a grace to handle it, to accept it. And that's what I think, even though there are sometimes we don't, we don't, the Lord doesn't deliver us from the consequences of our wrong decisions. There's a grace to accept it and to work through it. And, uh, and Moses, he didn't just accept it. He actually got on with his life. He prophesied over the 12 tribes. He gave them all a prophetic utterance. Then he laid hands on Joshua, the new leader, transferring the leadership over to him. So, like I said, he still carried on serving the Lord. His days were not over. And even though it says he died, maybe in his eyes he thought it's over, but his life isn't over because here we are in the 21st century talking about Moses, learning about Moses. And in fact, he somehow did make it into the promised land. Remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he appeared. I don't know how he managed to, you know, weasel his way in, uh, but the Lord was gracious. And so he says, turn or return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants and satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, turn my situation around. Yes, there is grace to deal with my situation, but turn it, make it turn out for good. And um, I think Moses was probably talking about the building of the tabernacle and coming into the promised land. Now, you know, in Judaism, Moses is one of the key big uh, messianic figures, along with David, along with Abraham, along with Joseph. And Moses himself said, in chapter 18, verse 18, the Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet like me. Listen to him. Which is interesting on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what the voice said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And for Jewish people to expect or look forward to someone like Moses or even greater than Moses, it's like, it's not easy. Because at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says there was no one like Moses. 
and he's considered one of our great, uh, our great leaders, our great shepherds, along with David and Abraham. But uh, when we look and study the life of Moses, we can see so much, so clear how he was such a shadow. The whole story of Passover, I'm sure, as Pastor Joel has been teaching you, is a foreshadow of, as we, as we look at that story of, of the blood being sprinkled on the doorpost and the Israelites, the men taking a lamb for each house, going into the house, eating the lamb, every part of the lamb, how that is so much pointing to a future story. And it's no surprise that one of the names given to Jesus was the Lamb of God. Interestingly, he was born in Bethlehem, which is where the lambs were raised up for the sacrifices in the temple about five or six miles away. So it's not a coincidence. But if you look at the parallels between Moses, who as a little baby was hounded by Pharaoh, all the little baby Israelite boys were killed, and Moses was divinely spared, and we read the New Testament account, how Herod the Great was killing all the babies in Bethlehem, and how the Lord Jesus as a baby was spared. We see how Moses went up on the mountain, and Matthew 5 says, seeing a multitude, he went up on the mountain. Moses was the mediator. Jesus, our Lord, is our mediator. Moses was the deliverer. Jesus is our deliverer. And one other thing, and I kind of close with this, that Moses, one of the stories when the Israelites came into the wilderness is where they complained. Okay, now I don't know about you Gentiles, but we Jewish people, we like to complain. You know, they say, well, you've got two Jews, you've got three opinions and four decisions. Okay? And some people you can never please. It's like when I had my bar mitzvah at 13, my mother, she brought me two ties. And on my bar mitzvah day, I came down wearing one of them, and she looked at me and she said, what's wrong, you don't like the other one? <laughs> but uh, uh, the Israelites complained. And um, so what happened? The Lord sent snakes, and many of them died, and many of them were sick. So the very thing that caused sickness and death, God tells Moses to take that snake and put it on the pole. And when the Israelites look at that very thing that caused sickness and death, they would be healed. Isn't that strange? Why? And so some of the rabbinical commentaries say a couple of things about the story. Number one is when Moses put it on this, the pole, God just said, put it on a pole, but Moses chose a copper or a bronze pole to put it on. And it wasn't a mistake because the rabbinical sages say that when the Israelites looked at that serpent, which reminded them of their sin, they also probably saw their reflection in that copper bronze pole. They not only saw the serpent, but they saw themselves. And they call this not only an act of repentance, it wasn't just a glance, it was a fixation. It was what is called penitence. And that is part of our healing. 
as we not only just say, God, forgive me for my sin, but we think through, we see ourselves, we see what caused us to make these decisions, why I did what I did, what was the fear, what was the emotion, what was the mindset, what was I going through, why I did this. And this is part of our healing. And thank God we have a Savior who came and said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So may God give us the grace. May we find wisdom in these days as we wait on our Messiah, our unseen God who's with us. He is our dwelling place throughout all generations. It doesn't have to be a building, a synagogue, a tabernacle, a temple. It can be by faith wherever you are. Even the Lord said, when you go into your closet, to your room, and no one sees you, but your heavenly Father who sees you in secret, He is with you. May the Lord bless you and bless His word. Thank you and God bless you. Amen. Isn't it amazing that you can go back 3,500 years to a psalm written by Moses who had great days and days of failure, a man who was a murderer, a man who struck the rock in anger and, 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 and taking on the Messiah complex, as he mentioned, uh, and yet God still continued to use him. God still continued to bless him. God still continued to extend mercy and grace over his life, and that was 3,500 years ago, and here we are in 2023, and it's the same God extending the same grace, extending the same mercy, dealing with people who have good days and bad days, and that includes us. And I want you to know today, no, no matter where you are in your life journey, in, that, uh, in, the, in a season of time that God has granted you, what Moses said in Psalm 90 is true for us. God, help us number our days. Utilize the day, this day, that God has given you. Give it to him. Surrender it to him. And let God do great things in your life. Because no matter your failures, there's grace and mercy for that. And he wants to walk with you into the next part of your journey. And use those failures uh, to amplify what he accomplishes in your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for our message today. We thank you for our friend and our brother, Aharon. We thank you, God, for the, the message of, of a, a Jewish perspective that burns in his soul. God, we know that his desire is to live for you, to love you, to proclaim you, and to see the salvation of Israel. And God, let that be our prayer as well. And God, help us understand that, that there is a day coming, just like Moses said, how long? We stand here today, God, and we look forward, and we say, how long? To the return of the Messiah, till Jesus comes back to this earth. And God, he will, because you said he will. And, and, and that makes it a fact. And so, God, according to Scripture, according to prophecies, according to looking at our culture and our world, it certainly seems like the return of Jesus is soon. So help us <clears throat> number our days to live for you. Help us be witnesses. Help us be light in a dark world. And, God, we would give you the praise and the glory for it all because it's all about you, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We hope that God spoke to you through this message. If you enjoyed the message, be sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and visit our website at sturkey.church to find all the latest information and upcoming events. Be sure to join us again next week. Until then, may God bless you.